Well, this whole idea of mercy can be so challenging, right? So just strap in, and we'll see where God takes us this evening. So before we do that, again, we're just going to go ahead and speak our, our verses. And so starting with Matthew 5, 1 through 7. So now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountainside and sat down. And his disciples came to him and began to teach him. And he opened his mouth and said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. So challenging, but so freeing in some ways. So there's this idea of small beginnings and small endings. When we actually look at, this, at the Beatitudes, the beauty of them is they seem so small. They're just like these little nuggets that we feel like, like some like Chick-fil-A nuggets. They're just, they might seem so small and so, so unimportant. But actually, when you dig into them, they're deep and rich. That's one of the beauties of the Beatitudes. And so I love the Beatitudes because they have just that smallness to them. They're like, again, those little bite-sized pieces. Words and phrases like meekness, poor in spirit, peacemakers, mercy. At the very heart of these, you can really kind of sum it up in one phrase or even one word. And it's just humility. You see, the thing is, is what happened at the very beginning of the, at the garden, the very first thing that all sin is rooted in is actually pride. And so Jesus' first words to his disciples are actually seeking to dismantle that pride. The beauty of when we begin to live out the Beatitudes is we become humble people. That's one of the chief goals of what Jesus came to do. And so this group of people has a dear place in my heart. Um, I loved the opportunity to serve in the ministry I did in Denton, but this group in particular uh, holds a pretty dear place in my heart. And so we have a wide range. We're actually one of the few churches in Waco that have just this wide range. And it's fun to be able to interact with other ministry leaders across Waco. And they hear like, wait, you're like your older senior adults and your young adults are like in groups together. And they're actually like sharing life and talking about what's going on. And they're encouraging one another. The, the strength of youth is encouraging to the aged because they know that the kingdom is going to continue on when they go. And the old who have seasoned wisdom that's been curated can be passed on. That's, not, that's very rare in our, uh, very, uh, in, our, in our culture these days. And so for those of you who are young adults in this room, and the ideas of small beginnings, as you're young, do not despise the small beginnings, those precious moments. For the next couple of years are going to be where you discover some of your wisdom, that you will be a blessing to people the rest of your life. And to those of you who are a little older, I just want to encourage you, even though your strength has waned a little bit, there's a special mercy that God has for you because in the humility of age comes this ability to receive more and more mercy. Because as you become less and less valuable to our culture, you actually become more and more valuable in the kingdom. So in your, in your, in your later years, don't, don't neglect that. Years ago, uh, when I was in Denton, I got to uh, be a part of a young men's theological training program. It was called Young Guns. It was so much fun. It was in the early mornings, we would wake up and we had to start at 6 a.m. So 6 a.m. to 7.30 was like digging into God's word. 
And we had this one pastor named Tommy Nelson. If you don't know who he is, Tommy is this passionate, feisty, fiery preacher. He'd give Spurgeon a run for his money. Um, and those who do know him, are, are, some are nodding. But the thing is, is Tommy, when he got saved, he actually spent the next 20 years of his life. He got saved in college and spent 20 years of his life memorizing the Bible. And by the time he was 40, 45, he had the whole thing memorized. I know, right? Absolutely incredible that someone would do that. And so when Tommy would, with that came um, just an incredible amount of pride that he would have, we would quiz him. We would flip through, point at a verse and be like, hey, Tommy, what is this verse? And he would, he would, quote, he would, he would quote it perfectly and he would know exactly where it was. So just this absolutely passionate man after God as well. Denton Bible was part of a discipleship movement that started in the 60s and 70s, years ago, and it's grown to a 5,000-person church. It's become one of the most influential churches actually in the globe, but especially in the Texas area. And so just to be able to sit under Tommy and learn from him for years and years was incredibly impactful in my life. But one of the things that really hit Tommy is about five years ago, six years ago, he got hit with a bout of depression. He was teaching around 27 hours a week. Yes, 27 hours a week he was teaching. So just an overwhelming amount of pouring his life out. And when that deep depression hit him, God showed him a new level of mercy that he had not before. Tommy used to be incredibly brash. He was feisty and was in many ways even arrogant in his theological vision. And with that, with that humbling, brought him to a new place where he would still be his quarterback self, his brash self, when he was working with us. But there was a new gentleness to him. He was gentle in a new way. One of our students started to battle with depression as well, one of my classmates, and there was a kindness in Tommy's eyes that was sweet and special. Tommy had this ability to begin to be merciful. Reason I'm sharing this story is just that even those of us who are become the most elevated and the most prideful, God has a deep desire for us to become also the most merciful as well. One of the greatest lessons, though, from Tommy was when he unpacked the Beatitudes. When he actually spoke, here's how the Beatitudes work. work. He didn't just describe them as little notches for us to figure out, but actually a pathway for spiritual growth. This pathway for spiritual growth is laid out in blessed are the poor in spirit. We enter into the kingdom at a younger age, whenever we enter into the kingdom, we enter in it poor in spirit. And then after that, once we see that we can start to see with our eyes the kingdom of heaven, we actually begin to mourn because we become faced with the reality of our sin. But when we're comforted, we actually become more gentle because we understand that it's the gentleness that God has for us that empowers us to be gentle with others. Then after that, we begin to see that, oh man, I want more of this kingdom. And so we hunger and thirst for righteousness. The more you hunger, the more you thirst, the more you see how good God is. And then you end up being satisfied. And when you begin to see more of the satisfaction, you become pure in heart. And when that pure, or sorry, then you become merciful. Because you become merciful and you understand that the only way other people are going to experience Jesus is if I'm sharing the food that God has for me. Then as you become more merciful, you actually become more pure. Because when you extend mercy, you start to see, you see God as merciful for who he is. And then once you become pure in heart, you become a peacemaker. 
because you see that there actually is the ability to make peace with other people because peace is possible when mercy is present. And then after you become a peacemaker and you become the sons of God, as we step into that, we actually begin to be persecuted because there are people out there that don't want to make peace. There are people who actually their pride is so uh, powerful in them that they actually don't desire the peace. And so therefore the persecution comes. And so this, these, these beatitudes aren't just like, again, little nuggets. They're, it's a pathway for us to grow and mature as well. And so that was just one of the greatest uh, pieces I learned from Tommy. And so just in the upcoming months, as we dig into these more and more, asking the Lord, where am I out on my journey here? Where are you really trying to stretch me? My encouragement is tonight will probably be one of the nights that stretch a lot of us because in my preparation of this, God was doing some numbers on me as well. And so the beauty of the Sermon on the Mount, though, is it's not an impossible discernment to live up to. We oftentimes view it as such. We see the Sermon on the Mount as, I can't do that. That's impossible. There's no way I can accomplish this. Well, without Jesus, it's impossible. But the thing about the Sermon on the Mount is it's actually supposed to be just normal Christianity. We look at it and we have this, we get motivational speakers who say, here's the Sermon on the Mount. You must live into it. Actually, when Jesus teaches this, he just goes, hey, this is normal. And so as we stick, dig into it more and more in these upcoming weeks and months, just remember, this is normal. And with Jesus, it is possible to grow into what's actually happening in these texts. But so challenging, so challenging indeed. Most dictionaries define mercy as being kind, forgiving, and compassionate and being kind and compassionate in their treatment of others. Mercy enables us to identify the pain and sorrow that others are experiencing. It includes the ability not only to forgive others, but to grow into receiving forgiveness for ourselves. So some verses, uh, Psalm 36 verse five is, thy mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens, and thy faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Psalm 89, one and two is, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make my faithfulness to all generations. Psalm 90, verse 14 is, O satisfy us early in the morning with thy mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. And one of my personal favorites, Lamentations 3, 22 through 26. For it's the Lord's mercy that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. There I have my hope in him, and the Lord is good to them who wait on him. For the soul seeketh him. It is good that a man should hope and quietly wait on the salvation of the Lord. Amen? Amen. Isn't that good? That he, he is, in his nature, he is actually very eager to show us mercy. God doesn't just show us mercy because he should or because he's obligated to. It actually brings him great joy. And the beauty, if there's anything you can take away tonight that I could share, is the beauty of Christianity is that we are made in God's image. And so the more and more we get to know him, the more and more we are to grow into being like him. It's not just you're obligated to be like him. He actually wants to invite you into becoming like him. It's not just about salvation. It's about becoming like who he is, because the more we become like him, the better the world gets. Amen? Amen. And so just as we study this, remember that this mercy, this teachings that Jesus had is because he lived them out 
And he's the perfect example of how we can begin to limb them out, no matter how challenging they might be. And so mercy gives others, gives to others, but actually considers and doesn't want to have anything in return. As we look at David and Jonathan in 1 Samuel 18, 1 through 4, I'll go ahead and read that. So after David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David. He loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him, and they did not let him return home with his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he had loved him as himself. Jonathan took on the robe that he was wearing, took off the robe, and gave it to David, also his tunic and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Jonathan, the heir of the throne in this passage, David was the shepherd boy when this moment happened. And so Jonathan gave his robe representing his authority and identity that he was giving to David. And they made a covenant. A covenant is not just a contract. A covenant is saying that I'm going to stay in relationship with you. I'm going to relate. And all relationships have two basic things. To acknowledge where you're the same and to delight in where you're different. If you could boil a relationship down, it's to engage with someone else, to know where you're the same and know where you're different. And so David and Jonathan cut covenant with one another and they make this promise to one another. Jonathan gives his authority and identity to David and he doesn't ask for anything in return. In the same way, when we are merciful, we are to give to others and expect nothing in return. The only thing David offers in return is his commitment to him. And we'll see here in a second how beautiful that commitment really is. And so, first, continuing on in the story, Jonathan in 1 Samuel 2:42, Jonathan and David, when they were parting, they said, "Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with one another in the name of the Lord." saying, the Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. David left and Jonathan went back into town. And this wasn't just a, a, a normal parting. This was a, a painful parting of good friends as they knew that their relationship was separating and severing. But David remembered his commitment. And actually in this, there's a lot of weeping going on too. So there's a level of pain that they're both entering in and sharing with one another. Years later, uh, when Saul ends up chasing down David, is actually trying to kill him, Saul gets to the point where Saul ends up dying. David ends up ascending to the throne. Jonathan passes away as well. But in this part, this would be normal for uh, a king to end the line of his former, the former reigns. But what happens is we're going to unpack again this next passage, 2 Samuel 9, 1-13. through 13. What happens next is that Mephibosheth enters into the story. So David asked, is there anyone left in the house of Saul to whom I could show kindness for Jonathan's sake? I just want to, want to pause. David, with his former boss, his former king, tried to kill him multiple times. And it wasn't just like a, hey, let's go make an order and kill the king. He was literally throwing spears at David in his traumatic state. He literally was trying to kill him multiple times. He sent men after men after men to find David. And David's response years later, because of Jonathan, goes, Is there anyone still left in the house of Saul whom I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant at Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, At your service. He asked, The king asked, Is there no one still alive in the house of Saul who I can show great kindness to? Ziba answered the king, There is still the son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Makar, the son of Amiel and Lodabar. 
forgive me, not a, not a Hebrew scholar, but uh, we're going with the names. So King David had brought him to Lidar in the house of Mechar, the son of Mael, where when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and bowed down to pay honor to him, David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. David said, do not be afraid, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore you to the land that you belong to, to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master, your grandson, everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever the Lord commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he ate at the king's table and was lame in both feet. It's a mouthful, but so good, right? Just that idea that, that Mephibosheth is still welcome at the table. David doesn't just say, hey, I'm going to go take care of your land. I'm going to give you some money and send you on your way. He says, you will always be welcomed at my table. See, mercy can be painful because it actually puts us into relationship with difficult people. Mercy can be challenging because it allows us to enter into people who have incredible pain and incredible sorrow. But again, that verse 3, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul whom I can show God's kindness? What David is doing is he's not just remembering the covenant, but he's actually looking for someone to be kind to. See, God, the way God works and the way he operates is he is a God who's actually looking for mercy. It's almost like it's on his radar. Like wherever Jesus goes, he finds lepers. He finds people who are broken and despair and despondent. He doesn't just say like, hey, like I'm going to go beyond my way. He's actually looking for them. His ears are attentive. So just like David and Jonathan, a covenant was made between them that David chose to be kind to all of Jonathan's family. Not because he was required to or obligated to, but because of the overflow of his love for Jonathan, God has given, his, God has given him the ability to be mercy, merciful. And he gives us the authority and blessing to be merciful as well. So just like Jonathan is merciful to David, David passes on the mercy. And that's how it works. It's cyclical. The more and more we begin to receive mercy, the easier it becomes. It's literally like a spiritual muscle for us in this process. And so it's so vital for us to be honoring of other people. And so I believe there's three levels of honor that can be shown to people. Um, one, one pastor out of, uh, out of California, his name is Bill Johnson. He teaches uh, that, we are ha- that honor is that we are to have preference for one another. The first level of honor is that we would see every single human being as made in the image of God. Every single human being is an image bearer of God redeemed or unredeemed. 